0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Doctrine, Dogma, and Davide podcast. My name is Davide Genoes Terpi, and today we're going to be continuing our discussion of the Second Vatican Council, specifically with regard to ecumenism, and the question of whether or not Catholics and non-Catholics can pray and worship together. So with this topic, I think that the best place to start is to start out with Vatican II's document on ecumenism called Unitatis Redintegratio, so that we can find out exactly what it is that the Second Vatican Council actually teaches about ecumenism, what it is and what it looks like, and then we can go and look at what the Church has historically taught and see how we might be able to reconcile the views and understand what it is that Vatican II is actually saying here. So I've taken four passages from Unitatis Redintegratio that I think are really key to helping understanding what the church teaches here, as well as sort of picking out certain passages that are considered controversial or that are criticized by set of as well as the Society of Pius X. Unitatis Redintegratio in section 4 states, quote, The term ecumenical movement indicates the initiatives and activities planned and undertaken according to the various needs of the church and as opportunities offer to promote Christian unity. These are, first, every effort to avoid expressions, judgments, and actions which do not represent the condition of our separated brethren with truth and fairness, and so make mutual relations with them more difficult. Then, dialogue between competent experts from different religious churches and communities. At these meetings, which are organized in a religious spirit, each explains the teaching of his communion in greater depth and brings out clearly its distinctive features. In such dialogue, everyone gains a truer knowledge and a more just appreciation of the teaching and the religious life of both communions. In addition, the way is prepared for cooperation between them in the duties for the common good of humanity which are demanded by every Christian conscience. And whenever this is allowed, there is prayer in common. Finally, all are led to examine their own faithfulness to Christ's will for the Church and accordingly to undertake with vigor the task of renewal and reform. Section 8 states, quote, In certain special circumstances, such as the prescribed Prayers for Unity, and during ecumenical gatherings, it is allowable, indeed desirable, that Catholics should join in prayer with their separated brethren. Such prayers in common are certainly an effective means of obtaining the grace of unity, and they are a true expression of the ties which still bind Catholics to their separated brethren. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Yet worship in common, communicatio in sacris, is not to be considered as a means to be used indiscriminately for the restoration of Christian unity. There are two main principles governing the practice of such common worship. First, the bearing witness to the unity of the Church, and second, the sharing in the means of grace. Witness to the unity of the church very generally forbids common worship to Christians, but the grace to be had from it sometimes commends this practice. The course to be adopted with due regard for all the circumstances of the time, place, and persons is to be decided by local episcopal authority unless otherwise provided for by the bishop's conference according to its statutes or by the Holy See. Section 11 states, quote, The way and method in which the Catholic faith is expressed should never become an obstacle to dialogue with our brethren. It is, of course, essential that the doctrine should be clearly presented in its entirety. Nothing is so foreign to the spirit of ecumenism as a false erenicism, in which the purity of Catholic doctrine suffers loss, and its genuine and certain meaning is clouded. Section 15 states, quote, These churches, the Eastern Orthodox, although separated from us, possess true sacraments, above all by apostolic succession, the priesthood, and the Eucharist, whereby they are linked with us in close intimacy. Therefore, some worship in common, communicatio in sacris, given suitable circumstances and the approval of church authority, is not only possible, but to be encouraged. All right, so let's break down what Unitatis Reintegratio is trying to say here. First of all, ecumenism refers to groups or meetings of Catholics and non-Catholics for the purpose of dialogue in order to better understand one another's theology. The ultimate purpose of these meetings is the hope that it will encourage people to come home to the one true Church of Christ. The council recognizes that when we mischaracterize or misrepresent the opinions and the theologies of the false churches and of false faiths, it makes it much more difficult for us to evangelize because then people become defensive and hard-hearted, and they're not willing to listen to the Catholic perspective. And so the church sets forth this guidance that we should engage in these ecumenical meetings and this dialogue so that we can better understand where we agree as well as where we differ, and that we should seek to find common ground so that it might be easier for us to reunite under the headship of the Bishop of Rome, that we might be one church, one flock in Christ. But the council also affirms that in no way can the Catholic doctrine be in any way obscured or clouded or made ambiguous. You cannot leave anything out from the Catholic Church's teachings just for the sake of going along to get along. The council is essentially calling for people to argue in good faith, to not misrepresent, mischaracterize, or unnecessarily malign people of opposing faiths because that just makes the process of evangelization much more difficult and people are much less willing to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The council also states that it's acceptable for Catholics to participate with non-Catholics in so-called prayers in common. Basically this means that if a Catholic and a non-Catholic share a prayer, it is acceptable for them to say that prayer together. And this makes a lot of sense. The Lord's Prayer, for instance, the Our Father, is something that we share with many other Protestant denominations. The Our Father is an act of true worship. It is a true prayer. And so it doesn't cease to be a true prayer when it's said, by Protestants. And so Protestants, when they are participating in true prayer, Catholics can in good conscience participate with them in that true prayer, so long as they do not participate in anything contrary to the faith, so long as Catholics are not actively participating in any form of false worship. But a Catholic can still actively participate in the elements of true worship and true prayer in false and heretical sects And that brings us to what the council calls communicatio in sacris, which means communion in the sacred. What this refers to is essentially the practice of participating in the valid sacraments of schismatic sects, like, say, the Eastern Orthodox. And the council states, somewhat hesitantly and cautiously, that under certain circumstances, it is possible and morally acceptable and even beneficial to commune in sacred things with schismatic sects. But a very important distinction here is that these schismatic sects must have valid sacraments. Once again, a Catholic cannot in good conscience actively participate in any false worship. Therefore, a false communion or a false priesthood cannot be acknowledged or participated in in any way by a Catholic. But because the Eastern Orthodox, for instance, have true sacraments and true Eucharist, a Catholic could theoretically, in certain circumstances, if allowed by the laws of the Church, to actively participate and even receive communion at a schismatic church. Though it is worth noting that the Council still affirms that in general, the witness to the unity of the church would forbid communion in the sacred with the schismatics such as the Eastern Orthodox. And so that's sort of the gist of what Unitatis Redintegratio is saying. So then the question remains, is this a change, is it different from what the church has taught before? And the answer is, at least to a certain extent, yes, this is a change, because the Church in the past has steadfastly prohibited Catholics from participating in any sort of ecumenical meetings, any sort of interfaith prayers, in participating in any sort of communion or sacraments with schismatics. And so the essential question is, why did the church prohibit it in the past, and why is the church permitting it now? The claim you'll hear from Sedevacantists, as well as many people from the Society of Pius X, is that the reason that the church has historically prohibited these practices is because they are in and of themselves contrary to the divine law. And there are a plethora of encyclicals and historical teaching documents of the church that they will cite in order to justify this position. And so I'm going to go through as many of them as I could find and take a look at them just one by one. The first one is the encyclical by Pius XI, Mortalium Animus. Servant Contus will most commonly cite paragraph 10 of Mortalium Animus, which says, Quote, so venerable brethren, it is clear why this apostolic see has never allowed its subjects to take part in the assemblies of non-Catholics. For the union of Christians can only be promoted by promoting the return to the one true church of Christ of those who are separated from it. For in the past, they have unhappily left it. To the one true church of Christ, we say, which is visible to all and which is to remain according to the will of its author, exactly the same as he instituted it. Now, set of will oftentimes omit the last sentence in this paragraph as well, because I think it actually, quite frankly, undermines the set of positions, because it says that the one true church of Christ is visible to all, and is to remain, according to the will of the author, exactly the same as he instituted it. Many set of believe that there is no visible church on earth anymore. And so I think this affirmation from Pius XI, that the visible church will remain exactly as Christ established it, kind of contradicts the set of position but to the point of Catholics taking part in the assemblies of non-Catholics. Pius XI states that the apostolic see has never allowed, not that the apostolic see could never allow. Secondly, this affirmation comes immediately after the long explanation where he articulates exactly why he is prohibiting Catholics from taking part in the assemblies of non-Catholics. And I think that paragraphs 2 and 9 are very important for understanding this, Paragraph two states, a similar object is aimed at by some in those matters which concern the new law promulgated by Christ our Lord, for since they hold it for certain that men destitute of all religious sense are very rarely to be found, they seem to have founded on that belief a hope that the nations, although they differ among themselves in certain religious matters, will without much difficulty come to agree as brethren in professing certain doctrines which form, as it were, a common basis of the spiritual life for which reason conventions, meetings, and addresses are frequently arranged by these persons, at which a large number of listeners are present, and at which all without distinction are invited to join in the discussion, both infidels of every kind and Christians, even those who have unhappily fallen away from Christ, or who with obstinacy and pertinacity deny his divine nature and mission." Certainly such attempts can no ways be approved by Catholics, founded as they are on that false opinion, which considers all religions to be more or less good and praiseworthy, since they all in different ways manifest and signify that sense which is inborn in us all and by which we are led to God and to the obedient acknowledgement of his rule. Not only are those who hold this opinion in error and deceived, but also in distorting the idea of true religion, they reject it little by little, turn aside to naturalism and atheism as it is called, from which it clearly follows that one who supports those who hold these theories and attempt to realize them is altogether abandoning the divinely revealed religion. Paragraph 9 states, quote, These pan-Christians who turn their minds to uniting the churches seem indeed to pursue the noblest ideas in promoting charity amongst all Christians. Nevertheless, how does it happen that this charity tends to injure faith? Everyone knows that John himself, the apostle of love, who seems to reveal in his gospel the secrets of the sacred heart of Jesus, and who never ceased to impress on the memories of his followers the new commandment, love one another, altogether forbade any intercourse with those who professed a mutilated and corrupt version of Christ's teaching. Quote, if any man come to you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into the house, nor say to him, God speed you. For which reason, since charity is based on a complete and sincere faith, the disciples of Christ must be united principally by the bond of one faith. Who then can conceive a Christian federation, the members of which retain each his own opinions and private judgment, even in matters which concern the object of faith, even though they be repugnant to the opinions of the rest? And so Pius XI in this encyclical is expressly condemning this sort of ecumenical movement that was happening at the time for the reason that it promoted a religious indifferentism, that all religions are more or less good and equal. And at these meetings, Catholics are simply uh, going to share their opinion rather than asserting it as the one true faith. And so his condemnation of these uh, assemblies was not that they are intrinsically evil in and of themselves, but rather that they are morally hazardous to the faith of the faithful, and that it is wrong to fail to properly call everyone to faith in Christ. His condemnation states specifically that these assemblies were calling on each person to retain their own opinions and private judgment, even in matters which concern the object of faith. And a Catholic can never do that. A Catholic can never say that it's totally fine for you to just stay in your error, to stay in your false or schismatic church. Everyone is called to come back to the Church of Christ. And the failure of these assemblies to have that ultimate goal in mind is what is being condemned, as well as the fact that, you know, having uh, Catholics and non-Catholics, you know, uh, heretics and apostates all speaking on the same level is going to create a moral hazard where people are led astray and led into the error of thinking that all religions are more or less the same or more or less good or more or less salvific. And that is certainly an error. And so Pius XI, in his judgment, prohibited Catholics from taking part in any of these assemblies because it would lead to scandal, because he feared that people would be led astray by these assemblies and that the assemblies were not actually geared towards bringing people into Christ. What the Second Vatican Council states is that these assemblies must be oriented towards teaching the authentic Christian doctrine and should be a means by which we can come to common understanding about where we agree, as well as where we disagree, for the purpose of bringing people into the Church of Christ. Ecumenism is not good for its own sake we do not dialogue with other faiths simply for the sake of dialogue. It is for the purpose of ultimately bringing everyone closer to Christ, bringing everyone closer to the truth, bringing everyone back to the one true church of Jesus Christ, which is the Catholic church. And this is something that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under the pontificate of St. Pope Pius XII also affirmed. He stated that at ecumenical meetings, quote, Therefore, the whole and entire Catholic doctrine is to be presented and explained. By no means is it permitted to pass over in silence or to veil in ambiguous terms the Catholic truth regarding the nature and way of justification, the constitution of the church, the primacy of jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff, and the only true union by the return of dissidents to the one true church of Christ. It should be made clear to them that in returning to the church, they will lose nothing of that good which by the grace of God has hitherto been implanted. In them, but that it will rather be supplemented and complemented by the return. However, one should not speak of this in such a way that they will imagine that in returning to the church, they are bringing to it something substantial which it has hitherto lacked. It will be necessary to say these things clearly and openly, first because it is the truth that they themselves are seeking, and moreover because outside the truth no true union can ever be attained. He goes on to say in section 4, All the aforesaid conferences and meetings, public and non-public, large and small, which are called for the purpose of affording an opportunity for the Catholic and the non-Catholic party for the sake of discussion to treat of matters of faith and morals, each presenting on even terms the doctrine of his own faith, are subject to the prescriptions of the Church which were recalled to mind in the monitum cum compertum of this congregation under the date of the 5th of June, 1948. Hence, mixed congresses are not absolutely forbidden, but they are not to be held without the previous permission of the competent ecclesiastical authority. He goes on to state, quote, As to local conferences and conventions which are within the scope of the monotone, as above explained, the ordinaries of places are given for three years from the publication of this instruction the faculty of granting the required previous permission of the Holy See on the following conditions. One, that communicatio in sacris be entirely avoided. Two, that the presentations of the matter be duly inspected and directed. Three, that at the close of each year a report be made to this supreme sacred congregation stating where such meetings were held and what experience was gained from them. Pius XII also goes on to state in Section 5, quote, "...although in all these meetings and conferences any communication whatsoever in worship must be avoided, yet the recitation in common of the Lord's Prayer or of some other prayer approved by the Catholic Church is not forbidden for opening or closing said meetings." And so Pius XII, who even most contests acknowledge as a true pope, taught that it is acceptable for Catholics and non-Catholics to get together on equal footing for an ecumenical dialogue, and that at these meetings it is permissible for Catholics and non-Catholics to join together in common prayer. This overturned the previous disciplines of the Church, which absolutely prohibited Catholics from taking part in any such assemblies, or from joining in even true worship and true prayer with non-Catholics. And so it's pretty clear to me that the discipline Of whether or not Catholics are permitted to take part in interfaith assemblies or to join in prayer with non-Catholics, it is a matter of binding discipline of the Church. The popes prior to Pius XII prohibited Catholics from taking part in these assemblies and these gatherings and prohibited Catholics from taking part in common prayer with non-Catholics because they were worried that it would foster a spirit of indifferentism, that it would lead Catholics astray, that it would lead Catholics to believe that it doesn't matter which church you belong to as long as you believe in Jesus, to promote that sort of spirit of indifferentism that the popes were grievously concerned about. And so out of zeal for protecting the Catholic faithful, they prohibited people from participating in these assemblies because they knew that most people who would go and listen to these assemblies, listen to people talk, they might not necessarily be properly catechized and well-educated in their faith and may be led away from the church and away from salvation. And I will say, when you look at sort of the way ecumenical meetings and dialogues are treated, when you look at sort of the attitude of many people within the church today, I think it's pretty safe to say that they had a point. I think that the loosening of this discipline has actually led many Catholics to be sucked into that uh, dangerous error of indifferentism that the popes had previously warned about. I think that a lot of the predictions of the popes, such as Pius XI, Pius X, and Pius IX, I think that a lot of their warnings, that if these practices, if these assemblies, if this common prayer becomes commonplace, that it will result in a weakening of the faith and will result in the losing of many souls, I think that a lot of that has actually come to pass. And so while the relaxing of this discipline may have had negative repercussions, while the relaxing of this discipline may have caused harm to people, that doesn't mean that the church does not have authority over these disciplines. Alright, now that being said, there is a difference between Catholics coming together with non-Catholics in prayer or for an ecumenical dialogue, but it is a different thing for Catholics to participate in what is called communicatio in sacris. This is something that even Pius XII absolutely prohibited, and it's something that really every, uh, every Pope prior has absolutely prohibited as well. And I'll go ahead and read through a bunch of the sources that sediment contests and other people will use in order to assert that communion in sacred things is inherently evil and is inherently an act of apostasy and can never be approved of by the church. Blessed Pius IX, in his encyclical Neminum Vestrum, addressed to the Church in Armenia, states in paragraph 5, They eloquently acknowledge and freely receive the regulations and decrees which the popes and the sacred congregations published or would publish, especially those which prohibit communicatio in divinis, communion in holy matters, with schismatics. He goes on to say in paragraph 15, quote, at the same time, we cannot tolerate the fact that certain people under the pretext of promoting Catholic unity wish that there be no distinction in regard to the errors of the schismatics. They abuse the zeal by which this holy see took care to protect the ancient and holy rites of the Eastern Church. They think, and we cannot tolerate this, that what is at present being done by the schismatics is to be wholly maintained. And so Pius IX, yes, indeed, prohibits Communicatio in Divinis, Communion in Divine Things, which is just a different manner of speaking to Communicatio in Sacris. But he states that his reason for this is that there is an opinion that the perspectives that the theologies, that the positions of the schismatics can be wholly maintained, and that is absolutely false. As is also explained by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under Benedict XIII. It states, quote, When they see Catholics go to their heretical and schismatic Churches assist at their rites and participate in their sacraments should not one believe, or at least fear, that from this fact alone they would be more greatly confirmed in their errors, and also be persuaded by this example that they are walking the straight path to salvation. From this it follows that it is most difficult to avoid the danger of pernicious scandal to heretics and schismatics themselves. Wherefore, a Catholic cannot be in safe conscience if he worships together with them in this way. And so we see once again that that sort of communion, as long as it is a true communion, as long as they are valid sacraments, then it is not in and of itself intrinsically evil, but it can be deeply scandalous if it causes the heretics and the schismatics to believe that they are walking in the path of salvation, to believe that they are free to maintain their heretical errors. An excerpt from the second council of Constantinople states, quote, the heretic, even though he has not been condemned formally by any individual, in reality brings anathema on himself, having cut himself off from the way of truth by his heresy. What reply can such people make to the apostle when he writes, as for someone who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is perverted and sinful. He is self-contaminated. And I've seen people argue that this statement from the Second Council of Constantinople means that it is intrinsically evil to have anything to do with someone who is heretical or schismatic. But if that were the case, then there would be no caveat about admonishing him once or twice. If a thing is intrinsically evil to do, then there can be no exceptions to that thing. There are no exceptions to that which is intrinsically evil. If having anything to do with a heretic is intrinsically evil, then it would not be possible to have anything to do with him even prior to the first or the second admonishment. And so it can't be seen as an intrinsic evil to have anything to do with a heretic. The third council of Constantinople states, quote, If any ecclesiastic or layman shall go into the synagogue of the Jews or the meeting houses of the heretics to join in prayer with them, let them be deposed and deprived of communion. If any bishop or priest or deacon shall join in prayer with heretics, let him be suspended from communion. And I've seen people argue that this passage, because it imposes such a harsh canonical penalty on anyone who even enters the church of a heretical sect, Or anything like that, that because they were excommunicated, ipso facto, that therefore we know that this is a matter of divine law, not a matter of discipline. But we cannot distinguish discipline from doctrine simply by looking at the harshness of the canonical penalty that is imposed by the church. There are several disciplines of the church which now are given incredibly harsh ecclesiastical penalties such as excommunication, which previously in the church would not have suffered any penalty at all. Things like the uh, consecration of a bishop without the permission of the Holy See. Ever since Trent, it was a, a rigid discipline that no bishop may be consecrated without permission from the pope. But in the very early church, the sort of thing happened routinely. The pope still had plenary of jurisdiction over the whole church and could, in a way, remove certain bishops or excommunicate them. But a bishop didn't need to run their successor or their candidate by the pope before consecrating them any bishop that tries to do so now would be ipso facto excommunicated. But that does not mean that the rule, the discipline that any bishop must be approved of by the Apostolic See prior to his consecration is a doctrine rather than a discipline. The same is true for, say, the seal of confession. Any priest who breaks the seal of confession is subject to a late sententiae excommunication, an automatic excommunication. But in the early church, the seal of confession didn't exist. In fact, it was actually very common for confessions to take place publicly. So just because the church attaches a harsh canonical penalty to a certain thing doesn't necessarily mean that that thing is intrinsically evil in and of itself, and it doesn't mean that it is not something that could be changed or reformed in the future. Another argument I've heard is based on Pius VI's encyclical addressed to the church in France called Caritas Paragraph 32 states, "...at length we beseech you all, beloved Catholic children in the Kingdom of France, as you recall the religion and faith of your fathers, we urge you lovingly not to abandon it, for it is the one true religion which both confers eternal life and makes safe and thriving civil societies. Carefully beware of lending your ears to the treacherous speech of the philosophy of this age, which leads to death. Keep away from all intruders, whether called archbishops, bishops, or parish priests, Do not hold communion with them, especially in divine worship. Listen carefully to the message of your lawful pastors who are still living, and who will be put in charge of you later, according to the canons. Finally, in one word, stay close to us, for no one can be in the Church of Christ without being in unity with its visible head and founded on the Sea of Peter. So in this encyclical, Pius VI is addressing the church in France, which at this time had recently passed a new civil constitution, which essentially subordinated the church to the state. And there were a few bishops and some priests that went along with that new constitution and swore an oath to the state. Pius VI excommunicated these bishops and removed them from their jurisdiction, And then he tells the faithful of France not to have any communion or anything to do with the excommunicated bishops. And this makes a lot of sense, because in a time of confusion, it's important for the faithful to know who they are supposed to follow. And so if you have people going to Mass and listening to you know, excommunicated bishops in the Kingdom of France, then people will begin to think that they're still in communion with Rome. Again, it will lead to scandal, it will lead people into error. He's not saying that it is necessarily and intrinsically evil to hold communion with someone who is excommunicated. This is also very similar to a statement that Pius IX made in his encyclical Gravis Ac Diturne, which was addressed to the church in Switzerland. Now, this was shortly after the First Vatican Council, and you had the heresy of the quote unquote old church that rejected Vatican I. He states in paragraph 4, quote, "They should totally shun their religious celebrations, their buildings, and their chairs of pestilence, which they have with impunity established to transmit the sacred teachings. They should shun their writings and all contact with them. They should not have any dealings or meetings with usurping priests and apostates from the faith who dare to exercise the duties of an ecclesiastical minister without possessing a legitimate mission or any jurisdiction. They should avoid them as strangers and thieves who come only to steal" slay, and destroy. For the church's children should consider it the proper action to preserve the most precious treasure of faith, without which it is impossible to please God as well as action calculated to achieve the goal of faith. That is the salvation of their souls by following the straight road of justice. And so once again, Pius IX is speaking out of grave concern for any Catholics that might be led astray by the false doctrines of those who reject the First Vatican Council. Now I will say, I actually really like this encyclical, because in paragraph 2 he has another passage that states, quote, they repeatedly state openly that they do not in the least reject the Catholic Church and its visible head, but rather that they are zealous for the purity of Catholic doctrine, declaring that they are the heirs of the ancient faith and the only true Catholics. But in fact, they refuse to acknowledge all the divine prerogatives of the Vicar of Christ on earth, and do not submit to his supreme magisterium. He's talking about the old church, those who reject the First Vatican Council, but I think that he could just as easily here be talking about those who reject the Second Vatican Council, like the Society of Pius X, or in Contists, because they too will say the exact same things, that they're not rejecting the Catholic Church, they're simply zealous for the purity of Catholic doctrine, but in actuality, they refuse the authority of the visible head of the church, or even deny the existence of the visible head, and refuse to submit themselves to the living and visible magisterium of the church. Now, I'm sorry for throwing just so many sources at you all at once, but I I think it was necessary because one tactic that a lot of people who reject Vatican II will use is they will sort of like cherry pick certain phrases from a bunch of different documents and just sort of like, you know, beat you over the head with all of these supposed proof texts in order to try to reject the authority and the validity of the Second Vatican Council. And when you first hear all of those sources all you know, explicitly prohibiting Catholics from taking part in any non-Catholic worship, from even entering a non-Catholic worship building, from even having anything to do, any conversations, any contact with any non-Catholic, it can be really daunting and it can be really startling to just hear all of that all at once without understanding maybe the context behind it or the full text of the documents and what they're actually condemning, and most importantly, the reasons. The Catholics were previously prohibited from participating in any sort of ecumenical meetings or common prayer or communion and sacris with our separated brethren. Because ultimately the reason articulated for these prohibitions was primarily scandal. The authorities of the church were concerned that in having anything to do with people who are out of communion with the Catholic church, that that would affirm them in their errors and lead people astray. And that is still a concern that we have to watch out for. What happened at the Second Vatican Council is that instead of the Church taking upon itself in its authority to prohibit Catholics from taking part in anything that might might have the reasonable capacity to scandalize and lead people away from the faith, The council instead permitted individual bishops to discern for their dioceses and for their specific flock whether or not it would be fruitful to engage in these sort of ecumenical dialogues. And you can object to the prudence of that decision. You can argue that the bishops have not done a good job of properly mitigating the risk of scandal and people being led away from the faith, and that the result of the Second Vatican Council's expansion. Of ecumenism and permitting Catholics to participate in these things did indeed result in a lot of the evils that the previous popes had warned about. But that does not mean that the church does not have the authority over this particular discipline. And it doesn't mean that the church's previous disciplines are in fact matters of divine law rather than disciplines imposed by the church for the spiritual good of the faithful. Because ultimately, we are bound to submit to the legitimate authority of the Catholic church. We don't necessarily have to agree with every disciplinary change that comes down from the visible hierarchy, but we do have to accept it and we do have to obey it. But on that note, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up here. I hope you enjoyed the video. I hope it was informative and spiritually fruitful for you. If it was, be sure to like, comment, do whatever it is the people of the internet do. And if you have any additional questions, concerns, you think I may have missed something, gotten something wrong, feel free to let me know down in the comments. And I will see you all next week. God bless you. Oh